Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. All right, here we go. Well, good morning again, church. I was looking back at it last week. We completed Acts chapter 5, and I was kind of looking back over the chapter and the things we had talked about, and I just had to decide what a wild ride that one was. And in case you're wondering what I mean, to remind you, chapter 5 started with Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead. Then Keith told us about how the apostles had gained so much attention that people just wanted to be in Peter's shadow as he would pass by. And we closed out with the apostles being arrested, then being released by an angel, and then rearrested, and then warned, and beaten, and happy as clams. So sometimes, I mean, I just have to grin. I have to enjoy this, because it's my job to teach from this book. And I don't know that there's a more interesting book on earth. This is a great story. Acts 6 is going to take on a very different tone from Acts chapter 5. Now, Acts chapter 6, scholars kind of, they consider it transitional. A lot of the major themes of the book of Acts are about to shift, and we're about to start talking about some very different things. Before we get into it, I, I wanted to reiterate, Keith pointed out a couple of weeks ago that there's now a pretty clear distinction be, between how Luke uses the term apostle and the term disciple. And this is kind of important for us to figure out you know, what he's talking about as we move on. And the reason this, this kind of trips us up is that back in Matthew, when we saw the word disciple, we could pretty safely assume that it meant the twelve. And sometimes when we saw the word disciple in Matthew, it referred to the wider group of people who followed Jesus. But now, the ones that we called disciples then, back in Matthew, the 12, they've graduated. They are now called apostles, and Luke consistently calls them apostles. And that's an important shift, and I didn't really highlight that, because apostle means sent one. An apostle, the word has royal overtones. They're like emissaries of the king. They're sent by the king as his representatives. So the 12 are sent, they're the sent ones, and they have the king's authority. They've changed. And we've actually, we've seen the change. And it's easy to say that now they're at a different place in their role in their faith and the church than they were when we followed them through the story of Matthew. Their title now reflects what the Holy Spirit has done in them and what they've been equipped for. So they have transitioned from disciples, followers of Jesus, that's all a disciple means is follower, to his representatives in the world. So from here on, when we see the word apostle, it is one of the 12, plus one, we'll get to that later, And when we see the word disciple or disciples, it's referring to the larger group of followers of Jesus, which is now numbering in the thousands. Does that kind of make sense? So disciples are followers, apostles, I think you get it. The 12 have been upgraded. They've got their platinum cards, however you want to think about it. But let's get into it. We're in uh, Acts chapter 6. We're looking at verse 1. And we start this morning with a problem. First is my remote's not on. 
Acts 6 verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There is a lot to unpack here. There's a lot of categories and and a lot of things going on. But first, we we sort of see an example of what I just talked about, which is why I bring it up now. The disciples in the church are increasing in number. That doesn't mean that they're adding to the the 12. That just means that the church continues to grow. But I, I think you get that already. And what we see is that as with any church which is going in the right direction, it suffers growing pains. The first Christians were really no different in this regard. Even with the apostles at the helm, they had some issues to work through. And here is one issue. Someone is being neglected, and that neglect is causing a stir in the community. Hey, Andrew, are we still having issues with uh, the internet? Can you go to the router and make sure everything's connected right? Because I was playing with that this morning, and that may be part of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so everybody online, if it's a little off and on, we apologize for that. We've got poor Andrew running around trying to figure it out. So someone is being neglected and it's causing a stir. There are three really important ethnic categories that we need to be familiar with in the New Testament for some of these things to make sense, right? So let's do the work. I made a helpful diagram and I didn't make it in paint this time, so it looks a lot better than usual. So here's the way the diagram works. Let's see if I can see it if I come over here. So generally, when we're dealing with ethnic categories in the New Testament, there are three main categories, and those are Jews, sometimes called Hebrews, Hellenists, and Gentiles. And none of these are exactly the same thing. So whenever the New Testament refers to Jews, or in in this case, it refers to the Hebrews, It's referring to traditionally Jewish people, people who still practice the Jewish culture. And these people tended to speak Aramaic. Aramaic is a cousin language to Hebrew. And a good example of this category of people is the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very invested and centered in Jewish tradition. And then we have this category that comes in the passage today called Hellenists. Hellenists are Jewish but they're culturally Greek. They've adapted to the dominant Greek culture, which was all over the Mediterranean world. Their primary language was Greek. And examples of Hellenists are many of the Sadducees were Hellenists. They practiced a Greek culture, although they were Jewish. And international Jews, the Jews who would come from all around the empire for the holidays, tended to be Hellenists. I'm sure not all of them were, but many of them were. And then we have the last category, which is the big one. Uh, By ethnicity, Gentiles are anybody who isn't a Jew. And the primary language was Greek in the part of the world we're talking about. And examples of Gentiles in the New Testament are many. You can consider the Romans, Greek-speaking Gentiles, because most of the Roman citizens that we meet are actually from the Greek world, not the Latin world, unless they say so. Those are details we probably don't need. But there's also the Decapolis. If you remember that from Matthew, there were 10 Greek cities on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus interacted with those Gentiles sometimes. So those are more examples of Gentiles in the New Testament. And as Paul goes out and he starts planting Gentile churches, this category becomes more and more prominent in the scriptures. 
So I just want you to catch the distinction that when, when the New Testament says Hellenists, it's still talking about Jews. And it may still be talking even about religious Jews, but these are Jews who are culturally Greek. Does that make sense? Anybody have any questions or that, that sort of works out? Okay, good. So here's the problem. In our passage today, some of the Hellenists, some of the culturally Greek Jews are complaining to the Hebrews the traditional Jews, that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. So we don't know exactly what this distribution is, except that it happened every day, but we know that it certainly meant that the church was handing out food to people in an organized way. And this distribution, it probably also included clothing. It quite likely included money because we've heard all sorts of things in Acts already about the, the apostles collecting money and distributing money. So it probably included all three things. And this charitable distribution for widows in particular was important because they were among some of the most vulnerable in ancient society. Without husbands to provide for them, their situation was absolutely desperate. So let's break that down a bit. Keep in mind that over 80% of the population at this time was desperately poor. I've talked about that before. So if you became a widow, it was pretty unlikely that your extended family would be able to provide for you. They were as almost as poor as you were. Also, these widows were not necessarily old women. Life expectancy in the first century was about 30 to 35 years. So women also married older men. Women were quite commonly then widowed in their 20s, and they still had children around. So given that, they couldn't really expect their kids to provide for them either, because their kids were probably still kids in many cases. So it's a little bit morbid, I know, but Rachel and I would actually make a perfect example of this happening, right? (laughs) I'm turning 35 this summer. She's in her 20s. We have two kids. We have another kid on the way. So one day, ancient Chad gets appendicitis, and I'm a goner. No way to treat it. Go to Cuba. Go to Cuba, yeah, Ron. I shouldn't have used appendicitis as an example. I'm sorry, Ron. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm toast. And now Rachel has to either either remarry or she has to beg and potentially starve. Those are her two options. And I've come to the end of my lifespan already. So happy Mother's Day. That's the mother's lot. (laughs) So you can see why there's a need for the church to support these women. This would be a fairly common thing. I mean, orphans were also a very common thing if, if mothers probably didn't live much longer than 35 either. And as the church is supporting these women, there's a complaint that the Hellenists, the Greek speakers, or the culturally Greek are being neglected. And we don't know what it means by them being neglected, but I think we shouldn't think that there was a prejudice against them. We got reason coming to believe that it's not because of a prejudice. And if I had to guess, it's probably simply that because almost all of the leaders of the early church were traditional Jews, that they weren't as connected to the Hellenist community, so they didn't meet the needs in quite the same way as they did with their own family members and friends. And that kind of makes sense. I think we could kind of imagine that happening. But overall, what we need to say is that this situation that we get in verse 1, it doesn't work in Jesus' community. 
A fundamental part of our calling as Christians is to care and love for the vulnerable because we are here to bring good news to the downtrodden. As Christ loved us, so we love our fellow believers. We love the least of these. And if you remember back in Matthew, this is, this is a deep cut at this point, but in Matthew, when Jesus was talking about the least of these, he was talking about his disciples and he was comparing them to children. So he was saying, who cares for the least of my followers is, is, has a part in the kingdom of heaven. We do what we can to help each other. And if this is our calling to support one, each other and to bear up one another, then ethnic divisions cannot be allowed to overcome Jesus's church. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So compassion requires action, right? And and the, the apostles, they recognize this. And they recognize that this ethnic division, it does not belong in Jesus's church. It needs to be dealt with. And so the apostles, they go and they call this all hands on deck meeting, The full number of the disciples at this point would be in the thousands. And they've called everyone out to say, we have to settle this. But the apostles, the first thing they say is they're being really realistic about the situation. Because I'm sure as soon as people recognize there's a problem, people expected them to take over the problem, that it's the apostles who would deal with it. They could run the charitable distribution and make sure it's done fairly. They're in charge. They should look after it. It's their job. They have a, but the apostles recognize that they have a calling and their calling is as clear as it could be. They are called to preach the word. And we know this, we recognize this because God has just sprung them from prison to teach them and ordered them to go back and preach the word. And so if they wouldn't stop preaching the word when the Sanhedrin was threatening them, why would they then stop preaching the word because of church drama? It just doesn't make sense. So like Moses taking sage advice from his father-in-law, the apostles recognized that in this situation, they need to delegate. They need to put someone else in charge of this problem. Verse three. The apostles said, therefore brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Andrew, do you think it's possible the IP on the camera is doing it? Just unplug it, the IP. See if it helps. So here's the apostles' instructions. They say to the whole delegation, to all of the disciples there, choose seven men to deal with this. Now, it's important to note in this passage that brothers, in this case, in the Greek, is gender inclusive. There's no reason to believe that when Luke says they called all of the disciples to a meeting, that that didn't include women. Uh, The word here in the Greek can include both men and women. But did you catch this? Who gets to choose the seven men? Anybody notice that? The disciples, the community, the congregation get to choose. And I think the apostles have turned this concern, have turned this problem into a win-win situation. 
Because the apostles, they're going to be free to do what the Spirit has called them to do. They're going to be free to preach the gospel. And by telling the church community to take responsibility for this issue, they are discipling the church community. They are teaching the church community how to minister, how to take responsibility for the church. Both sides are going to benefit. So the church is to pick out seven men with these key qualifications. They have to have good reputations, they need to be spirit-filled, and they need to be wise. Now, by spirit-filled, the apostles probably mean that they need to be directed by the spirit. Wise and spirit-filled sort of go hand in hand. That they need to rely on the spirit for wisdom. They need to rely on the spirit for judgment. And the reason I think this is when we've seen that so-and-so was filled with the spirit, so far in the text, it was for empowerment. It was for empowerment for a specific task. So these seven men, they need to be open to the Spirit's will so that they can navigate a pretty delicate problem. Why seven? I don't know for sure, but I was looking this up because I get really curious about these rabbit trails sometimes. And one interesting fact is that the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, they actually appointed seven judges in Jerusalem to look after everyday disputes. So it's possible that the new church is sort of mimicking the Sanhedrin structure as sort of a a blueprint to go by, which would be pretty ironic if that's what they're up to. I I can't be totally sure. Verse 4, the apostles continue, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles have their task. God has made their task perfectly clear. And so take this from a pastor. People-pleasing is dangerous. You always want to say yes. As a Christian, we feel like we've got to be nice. And we often feel like our job to prove how Christian we are is to prove absolutely, is to please absolutely everyone we can. But you need to hear me on this. No matter what anyone else expects of you, Your responsibility is always and only what God expects of you. Sometimes we get involved in more than we should and we neglect God's mission for us. I'm starting to preach. I'm going to have a little more on this later. We got to get back to the text right now. For the apostles, their calling is easy. They pray. Not easy, it's clear. (laughs) They pray. They pray to rely on God for strength. They bring all the needs and petitions to him. And then they minister the word. They preach the gospel. That's what the 12 do. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen and a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaos, a proselyte of Antioch. And there you go. Everyone's on board. Elections went smoothly. Good AGM, everyone. You can all go home. The community picks their seven. First, we have Stephen. He is pivotally important to our story. The next couple chapters are going to be all about him. Luke is not exaggerating exaggerating when he describes Stephen as being full of faith, 
Remember, faith means trust, and trusting God is going to be exactly what defines him. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He relies on the Holy Spirit. He has the Holy Spirit's empowering. Then we have Philip. He's important to the story as well, and he's going to come up again a little later. And then there's five guys we basically know nothing about. But the last Nicolaus, he gets an interesting little note here. It says that he's a proselyte from Antioch. A proselyte means a convert. So let me just throw it out there. A convert to what? Any guesses? Why is it worth saying that Nicolaus is a convert? What did he convert from into? You would think so, but that's true of everybody, isn't it? Like that they've converted to the teaching of Jesus. So what this tells us is that he's a Gentile convert to Judaism. Christianity at this point is still 100% Jewish. And so then if we read between the lines, Luke does not see any of the Christian, the Christians as converts to a new religion. They are Jews who have found their Messiah. They're what Messianic Jews call today fulfilled Jews. They found the full truth of their faith. 2,000 years of history later, Judaism and Christianity to us are totally different religions, but we need to remember that at this point, Acts 6, that is not true. They are operating totally in the Jewish sphere. And so Nicolaus is a Gentile who converted to Judaism at some point in the past. This also means by a technicality, Cornelius is not the first Gentile to become a Christian, even though I always say that. So I have to correct myself. He is not the first, but Cornelius is the first to become a follower of Jesus without becoming a Jew first. And that's a really big deal. All right, so here's that list one more time. Not everybody's going to catch this, but does anybody notice anything that these guys have in common? Anything remarkable about this list? We have Stephanos, Philippos, Procuros, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaos. They are all Greek. Exactly. You nailed it. Think about that. This church, it's led by traditional Jews they recognized that the Hellenist widows were being neglected, and so the church chose spirit-filled Hellenists to take over the distribution and to solve the problem. This is a really simple fact, but I find it so beautiful. This solution in itself, it kills the ethnic division before they even have to go to a table and do any distributing. It doesn't give the division room to breathe. The Hebrews in this case have the humility to turn the ministry over to the neglected ethnicity. And then the issue is finished. And I, there's so much we could say about this, but I have to say what a lesson for the church. It shows us it's not our responsibility to maintain our control of Jesus's church. It's our responsibility to be just and righteous. And here, the the traditional Jews, the Hebrews, are willing to give up control of part of the ministry in order to solve the problem. And I I think it's a beautiful and a simple solution. Verse six. These they set before the apostles, 
And they prayed and laid their hands on them. The community sends these seven to the apostles. They're chosen by the community. And the apostles confirm the community selection by laying hands on them and praying for them. They are commissioned and the apostles recognize their calling from God. And then to close us out, Luke gives us one more little update on the state of the church. He throws these these in there now and again. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient in the faith. You know, no big deal. What? The priests, the Sadducees, are accepting Jesus as the Messiah. What did we have to say about the Sadducees last week? I'm gonna give this a little context. I didn't know a lot of this stuff, I looked it up. At this time, the priesthood in in Israel was about 18,000 strong. 8,000 of these people were temple priests and the remaining 10,000 or so were Levites And the Levites were people who helped with guarding the maintenance of the temple, upkeep work. They did the grunt work. It's a staff of 18,000. So how does this work? The way this works is that the priests would actually only serve in the temple two weeks of the year. They worked in two-week shifts. The rest of the year, the priests would live in whatever town or city they came from, and they had a trade. They would work. And while at home, they could do a little bit of priestly stuff. They could confirm that lepers had been cleansed and they could judge in some disputes. But of course, things like sacrifice and the holidays were reserved for the temple in Jerusalem. So you kind of have to think of it this way. The temple had a ton of reservists who were required to do two weeks of active duty every year. That's exactly how it worked. But even though these guys are part-time priests, that doesn't diminish what's happening in this verse. Because just think of all the hatred and opposition the apostles have faced from the Sadducees. It seems to me the Sadducees have gone harder after the apostles than they did Jesus. Now, some of the Sadducees' own staff are recognizing that Jesus is Lord. God is faithful to Israel And the remnant of Israel is faithful in return, even in the temple, which is so taken by corruption. These priests have found their king. They found their son of David. Okay, so I'm wondering now if you figured it out, what official church role was today's passage all about? Anybody catch it? The care team, yeah, exactly, the deacons. Normally when people go to find the job description of deacons in scripture, they go to Acts 6. So then that begs the next question, what is a deacon? And that's where things actually start to get a little complicated. I wouldn't even dare ask you that question. So let's take a little time to sort this out. Like what does the Bible have to say about what a deacon is? Deacon, the Greek word diakonos, very simply and most naturally translates as minister, and it's often also translated as servant. 
So we can think of deacons that were diakonos as a servant minister. The passage we had covered today has been considered like the job description of deacons, of servant ministers, since some of the very earliest years of the church. The problem we run into in this passage is that the seven in this passage are never called deacons. But the word does appear in the passage twice, and I have them up on screen right now. First is the first verse, just about being neglected in the daily distribution. And the word for distribution there is diakonia, which is ministry. And the second time it appears is, but we will, the, the apostles saying, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry, to the diakonia of the word. The widows are being neglected in the daily deaconing. The apostles will devote themselves to deaconing of the word. In both cases, diaconia, it means ministry. What's odd about this is in a passage that the church has always used as a job description for deacons, the apostles do as much deaconing as those who look after the tables, right? The whole point of this passage is that they don't need to deacon the tables. They need to deacon the word. You're going to get sick of the word deacon by the time I'm done this morning. But you see what's going on. It's a little bit complicated, but we need to realize that in this passage, there is no formal role of deacon. Deacon means ministry. It just means to minister. A diakonos is a minister. A diakonia is a ministry. There is a need in Acts 6 for a particular ministry. So the church community appoints ministers. And that's it. Now, I think we get our idea of deacons as a formal church office from Paul's letter to Timothy. So turn your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you, to 1 Timothy 3. I'm going to start at verse 8. That's 1 Timothy 3. I'll give you a second. What's interesting about this passage, I was talking about it with Rachel, is there's never a description in this package of what they do. It's only their qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So you remember the context of Timothy is Paul is giving Timothy instructions on how to organize the church in Ephesus. So in this passage, Paul gives Timothy the full qualifications to be a deacon. And when in Acts, Luke says that you need to have a good reputation and you need to be Holy Spirit filled, this is like a great explanation of what it means to have a good reputation, right? But Paul doesn't actually say what they're supposed to do. And that's all about, we can, 
All we can say right now, probably, is that deacons ought to be men with good reputations, more or less. But let me complicate that one for you. Romans 16.1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deacon of the church at Chintre. Here at the end of Romans, Phoebe is Paul's emissary to the church in Rome. She's a deacon. She's a servant minister. So, okay, I don't like to be snarky. I'm going to be very careful. But for the vast majority of the church, over the vast majority of time, the official role of deacon has been reserved for men. And I don't know how we got there. Because I have to then believe that the men who made those decisions, they must have misplaced Romans 16.1. And they probably misplaced it on purpose. Sometimes things which are traditional sound biblical. But we need to be careful. God is not traditional. God is righteous. We do not dictate to God who is in and who is out especially not contrary to his word. So then I'll move on before I get fired up. Believe it or not, the word deacon appears a whole bunch of times in the gospels as well. Here's a perfect example. Romans or Matthew 23. Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant, your diakonon, your deacon. When Jesus says the word deacon, I think it's translated as servant every single time. And I think when Paul uses the word deacon, they translate it as minister almost every time. Why translate the same word two ways? Don't ask me, I don't get paid as a Bible translator. But I think Jesus' use of this word deacon, it helps us get to the heart of what is actually going on here. When Jesus said this, says this, obviously he's talking to the 12, but I believe he's speaking generally about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's saying that if we want to be the greatest in his kingdom here on earth, we need to be servant ministers. We need to all be deacons. The call to servant ministry is a call for every Christian. Jesus calls us all to aspire to be great servants, to be great ministers of the word. If we are going to be spiritually healthy followers of the Lord, then like him, we need to become servants. When Luke recorded the appointment of the seven in our passage from Acts, he was simply recording the appointment of a particular group of ministers for a particular ministry. The church was not establishing the servant ministry, the deaconhood as an office. That's not what was going on there. And when Paul gives Timothy the qualifications for the deacon, he is simply telling Timothy what it looks like to look for a good minister. These are the qualities you want. They're almost exactly the same as what he says to look for in an overseer, in a pastor. And Paul is happy to commend Phoebe as his representative to the church in Rome because meeting Jesus' call, she has proved herself to be a committed servant minister. This is a calling for every Christian. You have a ministry to serve in. 
And I think the single most valuable thing we can learn from this passage in Acts 6 is this. Everyone is called to something. No one is called to everything. Everyone is called to something. Jesus calls us all to be servant ministers. Christianity is not for observers. If we are not working to advance the kingdom, we are not practicing Christianity. We might be watching it, we might be learning about it, but if, do, if doing it is always someone else's job, we've missed our calling. And I think that's the problem with one of the roots here, the professionalization of church roles. Because when we make a deacon a formal role, we leave serving to the deacons who've been appointed to that role. And when pastors are hired to be the guys who minister to everyone else, I think the church is broken. I don't think that's the church model. Which leads to my second point. No one is called to everything. It is not my job to preach, teach, administer the church, visit, counsel, pray, and study. It is my job to teach you how to do these things. I like preaching and teaching. I'm always happy to do this. I'm excited for it. It's an important part of what it means to equip the church. But I, the mark of success in my ministry, if I take my job description out of Ephesians 4, it's not when I preach a good sermon. I'm successful at preaching when Keith or Tyler or anyone else preaches a good sermon. I am honored to visit with you. I'm willing to pray with you when you're burdened, but I'm not successful when I'm your counselor. I am successful when you see another brother or sister in need and you reach out and you pray with him or her. And this same principle, it applies to you. You are called to do something, but you are not called to do everything. You can find what gives you joy and what gives you energy and what connects you to the Holy Spirit in the church and you better pursue it. And I'm going to help you pursue it. That's my job. But when you're asked to do something you're not called to do, please say no. The church never needs an unwilling servant. If we can't find willing servants, we better just let it go empty. When you want to do something which God has not called you to do, you need to stop because you are stepping into someone else's calling. And I have to believe, given God's body model for the church, we have everyone we need. We are perfectly equipped. We're not all perfectly motivated. All of this takes a pile of discernment. That's the mark of a good deacon, a good servant minister, is being in tune with the Holy Spirit. And that's the part I can't teach you. I can take you right up to that point. Your relationship with the Holy Spirit is between you and the Holy Spirit, is between you and the Lord. And I can point you toward him, but I can't bring you there. You need to do that. So where does that leave Hagman and I Church? Because we have deacons, right? Some 15 years ago, we decided to call them the care team. I think it was because everyone was tired of being on a deacon committee and it needed rebranding. Now, do I have that right? Like, Ron, do you remember those meetings? More more or less, right? (laughs) So the question then is, should we have deacons? And, you know, I'm not contradicting what I just said. I think we should. Because in our passage, the seven are called to a specific 
servant ministry. Where there is a need, people are called. And wonderfully, I love this, those seven, like our care team, are nominated by the congregation. We nominate our care team leaders. And in our case, we then allow the nominated person or couple to accept or refuse the nomination because you are not called to do everything. We need room to discern. So the system we have in place, I think, is absolutely faithful to scripture. And the reason I believe Hegman and I Church needs deacons is because I, as a pastor, need people to keep our church connected. That is part of how we grow and that's part of how we mature. I can't call and text and visit and have coffee with everyone. It's not possible even in a small church like ours. And I'm kind of bad at that stuff at the best of times. Like, trust me. But the great news is I have a team who's great at it. Especially these days, you know, when there's such a danger of becoming disconnected, the deacons at HMC, they're a vital part of our church life. And they may always be working behind the scenes, but half the time, I don't know what's going on in your life without them. So we have Les and Dolores, we have Laverne and Kathy, we have Keith and Shelley, Eric and Rhonda, and Tyler. They are all serving in this ministry right now, and you chose them. And I am blessed to have this team of servant ministers fulfill a specific servant ministry. All right, last question. Why? Why would you serve? I think there's 100,000 different ways to answer that question. And all answers to that question have to fundamentally be the same. And that answer is Jesus is worth it. And here's one way we can get there. Look at what Jesus did in this verse. Can you even imagine his grace? These were the very men who were beating him and spitting on him and interrogating him. And Jesus shows us that he has room in his kingdom even for his enemies. We look at a king with that kind of love and with that kind of compassion And how could this not be a king worth serving? How could we not serve a king who frees the men and saves the men who put him on the cross, who rejoices in them coming home? And I sat at this part of the sermon for a long time, and I don't like always having to put this to words. Jesus is good and worthy. And it's almost something to be experienced, isn't it? He is our Passover lamb who covered our sins and we are free because of him. And because of that sacrifice, there is no room for condemnation from the enemy. There is no room for condemnation from ourselves. And above all, there is no condemnation from God. All because of Jesus' love for us. And now he has sent his spirit to guide us. He has sent his Holy Spirit to guide us into repentance and into new life. He has sent his Holy Spirit so that we can be in commune with God every day, every moment. We can be a people constantly in prayer. He hasn't left us as orphans, just as he promised. He is with us. So that's a king worth serving. 
And that's what makes ministry a joy. And that's what makes finding your part in this church, this part in this kingdom, such an absolute pleasure because you do it for him. You don't do it for yourself or anyone else. You do precisely what the Lord Jesus has called you to. He is worthy. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Lord, you are so good. You are so worthy. And our prayer for our congregation right now is for all of us who have these ministries, who have these giftings and these callings. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be doing the work of bringing them out in us. We pray, Lord, that, our, that me as a pastor and our board and our care team, that we would be equipped in order to recognize giftings in people and empower them to be ministers, to be servants, to be deacons of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that there would be a flourishing of giftedness in this church, that people would lead fulfilled lives, not working and living for themselves, but finding a way to live for you, to serve you, to have a part in your kingdom. And God, above all, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have met us at the point of repentance and you have given us new life. And we pray, God, that you would equip us, all of us who are called to the ministry, to share this word with the people around us, that more would be saved. And we pray that there would indeed be a great harvest to come out of Hague, Saskatchewan, and that all those who are in pain or who are lonely or who have corrupt, wrong ideas about you, that the truth and the light would break through. God, we pray for a breakthrough, and we pray that we would be the people gifted, equipped, and willing to be your servants. Thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this opportunity to give you praise. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website, hagemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.